Welcome back, Heming Brainiacs, to the Heming Brainiac podcast. Talking about chapter 82, why did I already think Cronshaw was dead? And discussion prompt number two, are, re- are, are rugs really the meaning of life? Rug count plus one. Uh, we're flying through the rug count, so I think we've got more rugs than eggs at this point. Adrathea, whose Reddit birthday it is. Happy Reddit birthday. Um, what does that say? Reddit birthday. Yeah, cool. Let's see what. Let me see what Reddit birthday it is. We're now getting deep diving into your stats here. Joined two thousand and fourteen. Happy sixth Reddit birthday. Uh, Adrathea said, "Maybe you thought Cronshaw was already dead because he was dead inside." Maybe. During their final conversation in Paris, Cronshaw told Philip, if you can get out of it, do while there's time. I came away from that chapter with the impression that Cronshaw was trapped, over with, and dead in spirit. Yeah, I kind of just felt like Cronshaw was finished for the book and like he was dead. I don't know why I thought he was dead. I just thought he was like dead. Uh, Adrathea also said, I have a vague idea that I have heard this riddle of Persian rugs as the meaning of life somewhere else before, and I think that Cronshaw has already told Philip the answer. Is the answer the whole thing about you must discover it for yourself, otherwise it's no meaning, not meaningful? Is that like, is that the answer of the riddle? Because it doesn't really make sense. It's not really the meaning of life, unless it's to find meaning is the meaning. Um, oh, my head just exploded. All right. Let's not let's not do that anymore. My head's blowing up. Let's just read the next chapter and get it over with. We're up to chapter 83. And it goes like this. Cronshaw was publishing his poems. His friends had been urging him to do this for years, but his laziness made it impossible for him to take the necessary steps. He had always answered their exhortations by telling them that the love of poetry was dead in England. He brought out a book which had cost you years of thought and labour. It was given two or three contemptuous lines among a batch of similar volumes. Twenty or thirty copies were sold and the rest of the edition was pulped. He had long since worn out the desire for fame. That was an illusion like all else, but one of his friends had taken the matter into his own hands. This was a man of letters named Leonard Upjohn, whom Philip had met once or twice with Cronshaw in the cafes of the quarter. He had a considerable reputation in England as a critic and was the accredited exponent in this country of modern French literature. He had lived a good deal in France among the men who made the Mercure de France the liveliest review of the day, and by the simple process of expressing in English their point of view, he had acquired in England a reputation for originality. Philip had read some of his articles. He had formed a style for himself by a close imitation of Sir Thomas Brown. He used elaborate sentences, carefully balanced and obsolete, resplendent words. It gave his writing an appearance of individuality. Leonard Upjohn had induced Cronshaw to give him all his poems and found that there were enough to make a volume of reasonable size. He promised to use his influence with publishers. Cronshaw was in want of money. Since his illness, he had found it more difficult than ever to work steadily. He made barely enough to keep himself in liquor, and when Upjohn wrote to him that this publisher and the other, though admiring the poems, thought it not worth while to publish them, Cronshaw began to grow interested. He wrote, impressing upon Upjohn his great need and urging him to make more strenuous efforts. 
Now that he was going to die, he wanted to leave behind him a published book, and at the back of his mind was the feeling that he had produced great poetry. He expected to burst upon the world like a new star. There was something fine in keeping to himself these treasures of beauty all his life and giving them to the world disdainfully when he, he and the world were parting company. He had no further use for them. His decision to come to England was caused directly by an announcement from Leonard Upjohn that a publisher had consented to print the poems. By a miracle of persuasion, Upjohn had persuaded him to give £10 in advance of royalties. In advance of royalties, mind you, said Cronshaw to Philip, Milton only got £10 down. Upjohn had promised to write a signed article about them and he would ask his friends who reviewed to do their best. Cronshaw pretended to treat the matter with detachment, but it was easy to see that he was delighted with the thought of the stir he would make. One day Philip went to dine by arrangement at the wretched eating house at which Cronshaw insisted on taking his meals, but Cronshaw did not appear. Philip learned that he had not been there for three days. He got himself something to eat and went round to the address from which Cronshaw had first written to him. He had some difficulty in finding Hyde Street. It was the street of dingy houses huddled together. Many of the windows had been broken and were clumsily repaired with strips of French newspaper. The doors had not been painted for years. There were shabby little shops on the ground floor, laundries, cobblers, stationers. Ragged children played in the road and an old barrel organ was grinding out a vulgar tune. Philip knocked at the door of Cronshaw's house. There was a shop of cheap sweetstuffs at the bottom, and it was opened by an elderly Frenchwoman in a dirty apron. Philip asked her if Cronshaw was in. Ah, yes, there is an Englishwoman who lives at the top, at the back. I don't know if he's in. If you want him, you had better go up and see. The staircase was lit by one jet of gas. There was a revolting odour in the house. When Philip was passing up, a woman came out of the room on the first floor, looked at him suspiciously, but did not remark. There were three doors on the top landing. Philip knocked at one and knocked again. There was no reply. He tried the handle, but the door was locked. He knocked at another door, got no answer, and tried the door again. It opened. The room was dark. Who's that? He recognised Cronshaw's voice. Carey, can I come in? He received no answer. He walked in. The window was closed and the stink was overpowering. There was a certain amount of light from the arc lamp in the street and he saw that it was a small room with two beds in it, end to end. There was a washing stand on one chair but they left little space for anyone to move in. Cronshaw was in the bed nearest the window. He made no movement but gave a low chuckle. Why don't you light the candle, he said. Then, Philip struck a ma uh, match and discovered that there was a candlestick on the floor beside the bed. He lit it and put it on the washing stand. Cronshaw was lying on his back, immobile. He looked very odd in his nightshirt, and his baldness was disconcerting. His face was earthy and death-like. I say, old man, you look awfully ill. Is there anyone to look after you here? George brings me in a bottle of milk in the morning before he goes to work. Who's George? I call him George because his name is Adolf. He shares the palatial apartment with me. Philip noticed then that the second bed had not been made since it was slept in. The pillow was black where the head had rested. You don't mean to say you're sharing this room with somebody else, he cried. Why not? Lodging costs money in Soho. George is a waiter. He goes out at eight in the morning and does not come in till closing time. He So he isn't in my way at all. We need... We neither of us sleep well, and he helps to pass away the hours of the night by telling me stories of his life. He's a Swiss, and I've always had a taste for waiters. They see life from an entertaining angle. 
How long have you been in bed? Three days. Do you mean to say you've had nothing but a bottle of milk for the last three days? Why on earth didn't you send me a line? I can't bear to think of you lying here all day without a soul to attend to you. Cronshaw gave a little laugh. Look at your face. Why, dear boy, I really believe you're distressed, you nice fellow. Philip blushed. He had not suspected that his face showed the dismay he felt at the sight of that horrible room and the wretched circumstances of the poor poet. Cronshaw, watching Philip, went on with a gentle smile. I've been, qu I've been quite happy. Look, here are my proofs. Remember that I am indifferent to discomforts which would harass other folk. What do the circumstances of life matter if your dreams make you lord paramount of time and space? The proofs were lying on his bed, and as he lay in the darkness, he had been able to place his hands on them. He showed them to Philip, and his eyes glowed. He turned over the pages, rejoicing in the clear type. He read out a stanza. They don't look bad, do they? Philip had an idea. It would involve him in a little expense, and he could not afford even the smallest increase of expenditure, but on the other hand, this was a case where it revolted him to think of economy. I say, I can't bear the thought of you remaining here. I've got an extra room. It's empty at present, but I can easily get someone to lend me a bed. Won't you come and live with me for a while? It'll save you the rent of this. Oh, my dear, you'd insist on keeping my window open. You shall have every place, every window in the place sealed, if you like. I shall be all right tomorrow. I could have got up today. I only felt lazy. Then you can very easily make the move. And then if you don't feel well at any time, you can just go to bed, and I shall be there to look after you. If it'll please you, I'll come, said Cronshaw, with his torpid, not unpleasant smile. That'll be ripping. They settled that Philip should fetch Cronshaw next day, and Philip snatched an hour from his busy morning to arrange the change. He found Cronshaw dressed, sitting in his hat and great coat on the bed, with a small, shabby portmanteau containing his clothes and books, already packed. It was on the floor by his feet, and he looked as if he were sitting in the waiting room of a station. Philip laughed at the sight of him. They went over to Kennington in the four-wheeler, of which the windows were carefully closed, and Philip installed his guest in his own room. He had gone out early in the morning and bought for himself a second-hand bedstead, a cheap chest of drawers, and a looking-glass. Cronshaw settled down at once to correct his proofs. He was much better. Philip found him except for the irritability which was a symptom of his disease, an easy guest. He had a lecture at nine in the morning, so did not see Cronshaw till the night. Once or twice Philip persuaded him to share the scrappy meal he prepared for himself in the evening, but Cronshaw was too restless to stay in and preferred generally to get himself something to eat in one or other of the cheapest restaurants in Soho. Philip asked him to see Dr Tyrell, but he stoutly refused. He knew a doctor would tell him to stop drinking, and this... He was resolved not to do. He always felt horribly ill in the morning, but his absinthe at midday put him on his feet again. And by the time he came home, at midnight, he was able to talk with the brilliancy which had astonished Philip when, he first, when first he had made his acquaintance. His proofs were corrected, and the volume was to come out among the publications of the early spring, when the public might be supposed to have recovered from the avalanche of Christmas books. Alright, there we go. Another chapter down. Nice chapter. Quite liked that. Have your say about it at the subreddit. Thanks for listening. I'll see you tomorrow.